says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another installment of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. And we're back with another week of Rugby League World Cup to recap, another week of NRL news, sorry, to break down. So let's get the news team in. News team, assemble! It's uh, more for Ragnarok than an Avengers movie this week, 60s, because it's only just me and you, no Spiro, so no uh, full assemble montage. How you doing, though, mate? Mate, I'm doing exceptionally well. The weather is about as good as I can remember it being for some time. Uh, there's plenty of fo- footy on the television, catching up from the World Cup. The men's is getting t- really to the interesting stage. The women's is about to kick off. Mm-hmm. Uh, couldn't couldn't be better, mate. And then preseason training's just around the corner as well. So plenty of uh, stuff to talk about, and we're better than our news podcast. So let's get it started with the NRL news, uh, sort of a developing story now coming out of England. Uh, it focuses on Mitchell Moses, but also Dylan Brown too. But uh, sort of a conglomerate, or a, 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 what's it called, a ambassadori, or you know. A, a, a series of officials from the West Tigers have sat down with Mitchell Moses, including Tim Sheens, Robbie Farrow, and I think maybe Benji Marshall. Uh, sit, sorry, sit down with uh, Mitch Moses. Uh, ahead of the November 1 deadline, by the way, 60s. It's just around the corner, but it's not here yet, and they're sitting down talking turkey, but with no official contract. About oh, okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't behind closed doors in a Chinese restaurant with a photographer ready to snap <laughs> photos, yeah. or they haven't put... They haven't put either Moses or Dylan Brown in a jersey or anything like that. No, it's uh, it's it's not quite the Canterbury Leagues Club situation, but uh, the West Tigers are looking aggressively to potentially recruit Mitchell Moses back to the club that he made his NRL debut in. There's also been talk about potentially chasing uh, Dillbags, Dylan Brown, if it doesn't work for Moses, as they sort of go down their priority checklist of big-time playmakers. Uh, I've, I've got mixed feelings on this 60s because... Uh, I think I've spoken to you privately off the record about the uh, or my thoughts on the anti-tampering uh, rules and a lack of teeth when it comes to the NRL when it comes to it because literally all 16 clubs do it. Like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend Parramatta are innocent of it either. It's just it's absolutely farcical at this stage where even the worst team in the in the competition is openly flouting the anti-tampering rules. Yeah, basically the only thing that you're not allowed to do is table an offer. That's about it. You can talk to whatever player you want, let them know that the club is interested and come the end of the season that you'll have a contract ready to offer them. I mean, what more What more can you do? They, uh, I mean, it's, I'm like you, you may as well not have any rules in yeah, place. Just, just let players sign contracts whenever moving forwards because what's the point? Yeah, I mean, you know, surely, I mean, they're going to, we're not going to say that there's, dollar amounts that are being touted, but I'm sure there's a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink that goes on when it gets to this stage. Without a doubt. So, by the way, 
is Dylan Brown chump change? Is he's like he's he's been told he's second cab off the <laughs> rank. We can't get Mitch Moses. We'll we'll come and have a chat to you then. Is that is that the is that the way that I mean, it's panned that, out? That is the nature of rugby league targeting when it comes to recruitment, right? You do have to have a priority list. And it's always funny when you sort of play out the hypothetical where a player would know in this situation that they're number two or one B. They might try and spin it as, yeah, you know, you're, you're top pick alongside Mitchell Moses, one A, one B. But we went No, Moses no, but first. Mitchell Moses isn't pick one because that went to Cam Munster, didn't it? Did, weren't they throwing True. the kitchen sink True. at so, Cam Munster? So Moses was one B and Dill's one C, you know, it's... Yeah, and and so you know, and like we always say, it is a business, and players and teams would both realise this when it comes to negotiations. But there, there would be some players and some teams where the ego would get pricked if they're the second, uh, you know, string option when it comes to a new destination for a free agent or the club chasing the you know second or third option when it came to their recruitment list. Look, I'm sure that there are eel supporters out there who might have some level of concern about the West Tigers being successful in luring someone with a offer that maybe the Eels can't match. I, I don't know whether that's necessarily going to be the case, but you would like to think that Parramatta would have it within their planning in terms of contract offers that there would be significant rival bids for both of those players and that getting them locked up and not allowing them to leave, given that they are pretty much as close as you get to the Eels marquee mm-hmm. players. Uh, you know, it's arguable, you know, people have argued whether Parramatta truly has a uh, match-winning marquee player, but those two players are as close as you can get to that level of player within the Eels organisation, you would like to think that whatever needs to be done, besides insanity, <laughs> uh, would be done to retain both players. And I'm pretty sure that both have come out and said that their preference is to stay at Parramatta. And I think Dillbags has been quoted as saying, you know, it's it's more than just money when he makes a decision about where he's going to be. And I think at first the concerns around Dylan were uh, with regard to Melbourne, uh, if they had lost Cam Munster, that it might have been, they might have been able to make an extremely attractive offer to Dylan Brown. And when it comes to Mitch Moses, geez, it would surprise me if he went back to the the club that uh, he left in under acrimonious circumstances. I tend to agree in pretty much all facets, 60s. I mean, it's one of those things where you cannot rule out the potential of him leaving because the offer might be that good or there might be something else to play in terms of post-career as well. They might have a, you know, sort of like a great package set up and that's the reality of professional sports. But when it comes to Parramatta's ability to counter an offer financially, I think we're in a good position. That's what our whole recruitment retention sort of strategy has been about over the last sort of 12 to 18 months has been ahead of this big deadline of Dylan and Mitch and having the money and the resources available to lock them both up. And on the flip side too, you talk about our club culture and how strong this team is. And I think that those two young men or young men in the case of Dylan and Mitch is certainly not old, but he's more of the uh, senior member of the squad now. And that's reflected in his uh, positions within the team itself. I think that those two players are fully, wholly bought into the team culture that Brad Arthur and they, the playing group themselves, have built. Yeah, and I know that there's obviously... 
this has come about through a lot of media attention. I think Brent Reed's made a bit of um, a, uh, a put a bit of focus on it. But let's, as I said, I'd, I'd like to think that, uh, as you said there, that our our planning has gone into ensuring that those two stay. Uh, there's been nothing that's come from either of those players that would indicate that a potential move elsewhere is on the cards. We don't rule anything out. A couple of the moves from Parramatta players in the last 12, 18 months have surprised me as it is. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't think anything is an impossibility. But you'd certainly like to think that this is only a minor chance of happening. So... Um, yeah, I guess watch this space, but you'd like to think that there's going to be something finalised sooner rather than later. Yes, sir. Now, 60s, Nathan Brown could be on the move and perhaps not the Nathan Brown we all expected. There was a news report this week that the coach or former coach, Nathan Brown, is now in the mix for the head coaching role at the St. George Aurora Dragons should they move on from uh, Hook. So not really sure where this came from. Sort of was a bolt from the blue because it was our understanding that Brown was uh, sort of primed to take up uh, a full-time role as a, a junior pathways, uh, I'm not sure what, high performance manager or something like that, 60s? I, I think it's basically the, the title that uh, Joey Grimer had before, uh, elite coaching director. There you go, elite coaching oh, director. So, yeah, I went for high performance manager. It was a little bit off the, the boil there. But, yeah, I'm not sure how much credence we should put into this rumour, mate, but... It's one that's sort of come out there and you have to give it some consideration. Uh, it's interesting, though, because as much as these NRL or former NRL coaches always will tell you that, yeah, I've, I'm out of the game now and I've had enough or I'm you know, enjoying my time in the media, like we saw with Shane Flanagan, who is now you know, poised to take up the assistant coaching role at Manly. It, NRL coaching is a very, even if it is one of the most grueling jobs you're going to do, it's a very hard job to give up. It, it sort of it ends up consuming these men, doesn't it? It, it does. I guess it does, especially when they feel that they've got unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Now, Spiro spoke with us last week about his belief that Shane Flanagan feels he's got unfinished business as an NRL coach. Now, Nathan Brown, when he finished up as an NRL head coach, I think the words out of his mouth was, I'm done. That's it. You know, I, I have no interest in being a head coach moving forward. Now, it would be strange if within 12 months that that statement was uh, completely reversed. So it's in, it's in the blood sometimes. You know, you see players retire and unretire. You see coaches move on to other industries and then just get that itch. And that's what it, professional sports, I feel like, it caters to a certain subset of people that uh, whether they you know, achieve the ultimate glory or not, they tend to be incredibly well-driven and almost, it's almost like a psychosis. And Yeah. Yeah, and this might just be the case here for Brown if the rumour is credible. So we'll have to, like the uh, Moses and Dylan situation, sort of sit here and sit back and watch the space. But yeah, interesting to see it come out. And I'm not surprised given like what we just discussed. Uh, it's hard for coaches and players to move on. Yeah, Absolutely. But there are, uh, speaking of, of junior pathways, yes, nice we've, had, we've had some appointments. Yes, announced. familiar faces, uh, some uh, old names that we've come to be accustomed to. We'll start with the Harold Matthews and then progress to the Ball and Gale. 
starting with the under-17s in the boys' space. Head coach, Chris Howard. Assistant coach, uh, Steve, Gad- Steve Gadmar. Sorry, not Steve. Steve Gadmar. And the other assistant coach, Charbel Khoury. In the SG Ball, head coach, Stephen O'Day. Assistant coach, Jordan Rankin. And assistant coach, Paul, Con- uh, Paul Konakis. So Jordan Rankin making his, uh, I suppose, proper coaching debut after that sort of moonlight as a captain coach in the New South Wales Cup this year. Then in the Tash Gal, Ryan Walker, who helmed a fantastic season in 2022, he's back with assistant coaches Charlotte Henry and Ben James. Yes, so uh, we, we are seeing uh, all of the uh, head coaches uh, reappointed there. So it's, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how things pan out this year in terms of the role that Nathan Brown then has with the coaching team. Yeah, and, it feels like the uh, review has sort of been more shaped around the uh, auxiliary support for these teams rather than the actual direct replacements for coaches, hasn't it? They've gone yeah, it out. does. Uh, they they did have a transparent process of calling for applications and then going through the process of talking to the coaches and making their decision about who would be uh, the best fit for the uh, various jobs. Look, it's, it's no... It's no surprise to see uh, with the Gale team that there was no changes there. Um, with the with the Harold Matts and the SG Ball, we really had a scenario where um, that was first year in charge of that particular grade for each of those coaches. So that was uh, first year as head coach for uh, Chris Howard of the Harold Matts. And Steve O'Day had moved up from Harold Matz to the SG Ball. So, um, and he also had the uh, the role with the city team as well for uh, in representative coaching. Uh, Steve O'Day. So, I had the feeling that although there, that there was a review, that there wasn't going to be any harsh judgment of of the uh, of the head coaches, but it's. It's likely that there will be. Um, you would think that, w- with regard to this, there's possibly going to be that um, support that's there because you know these roles uh, are basically um, pretty full on during the oh, yeah. during the from the I, from I the preseason through to the season itself. Way, way more than the average pundit would believe as well. Yes, yeah. it is. I wouldn't say it's a full time job, but it, it is. A, it's like when you, you're working a full-time job and you're studying part-time at university in a very hectic course because these guys have thrown a lot of time and a lot of resources into the, the side gig here. Yeah, and, and that's it. It is a side gig for these people, uh, but they have to put in an extraordinary number of hours into the uh, training and prep. And uh, for people, we, we've been in the privileged position of seeing the uh, the the amount of prep that goes into each match for the uh, junior representative season, and uh, we've seen the video, the cut up video, the um, the tip sheet that's put together for the players, presentation that's put to them, and it's basically like a I would say an abridged version of uh, senior football's um, video work and um, and tip sheet. But nonetheless, it's like it's basically it's catered for the age group 
because you are talking about uh, players that are within a pathway, not a not a seasoned yeah, NRL scaled, player, but by the same back. time, exactly the depth of the preparation and the uh, examination of the uh, opposition, the the uh, the way the videos cut up, pointing out who to, you know, who they're looking at, what they're aiming to do. It, it's quite it's quite eye opening. So um, yeah, we we've been quite fortunate to see that, and it's um, and, and I will say it gave a completely different perspective on what goes into the uh, preparation of the teams at this level. And you teased it in the intro sixties, but it's just around the corner. Even with rugby world cup taking place over in England, preseason training about to take place was it the seventh of November or thereabouts? Seventh of no- yeah, seventh of November, mate. 7th of November, it's we'll get our first look at the young kids that are coming in to lock horns of all the old bulls and perhaps some of our new recruits too. Yeah, so they're the first group to come back. So we assume that any any player that wasn't involved in any level of um, finals football or deep into finals football, people that aren't on NR, uh, full-time NRL deals, um, they've, they've had a sufficient period of of uh, leave so they're looking at I think any NRL player that's uh, relatively new I think they get something like seven weeks leave yes and, I believe it's in the vicinity uh, of uh, somewhere between six to eight weeks I'm not sure what the actual day number is but it's a yeah. CBA mandated break yeah yeah so it's it's within that period we'll have to try and get ourselves updated with the um, exact time frame but basically the NRL players that are over there for the World Cup, we won't see them until the new year, whereas we'll start to see a staggered return from uh, players who aren't involved in World Cup Rugby League so that probably by the time the uh, mid-December rolls around, maybe half of the Eels full-time squad will be back there given that there's uh, 16 players all told from the Eels that are involved in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them, of course, are coming back to Parramatta. And we have a number of, as you mentioned, there's a number of new recruits that we will see. Uh, some of them might be there for the early start. Some might not. So it'll it'll be uh, an interesting time to get up to um, Kellyville and check out what's happening with the pre-season, start of pre-season. I think the big one, and I think I spoke about this in a previous podcast, but I think the big one, if he comes back in that first wave, would be Josh Hodgson as that real old head to steer the young kids around and lead the way, even if it is just fitness and conditioning, just having the guy that's been there and knows the ropes inside and out would be huge. Well, look, I'm I'm actually quite excited by that change at the dummy half, and and this isn't a reflection on Reed at all. What it's What it's about is... You've had Reed has been a mainstay there for the last four seasons. He's basic. I'm talking about that that period of time where he's been the first choice dummy half as as the last four years from 2019 through to the end of this past season. Now, what that's meant is that we've played a particular brand of football based around his skill set and his level of experience and. There hasn't been too many, like he's had his periods of time where he's been injured and we've had other players that have come in and we've had a taste of of slightly different approaches to dummy half play. What we do know is that Josh Hodson does have 
a very different way of playing the dummy half role to Reed Marnie. He's mm-hmm. he's he's very much in that. Um, he, he takes chances, but he's also like he's he's very creative as a as a dummy half. But he's also a, an exceptionally strong voice because he's been in the leadership role within the club at, at the Raiders. So it, it'll it'll yeah, I'm excited because it's like change, you know, change and something different brings. Um, the possibility that there will be a new look about the shape of our attack, especially I think within the quarter, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so hopefully Hodgson stays fit. That that is the only question mark for me. I think that in terms of skill set, motivation, drive, leadership, all those intangibles, all those tangibles, everything you talk about in rugby league dummy half, I think he's going to be quality for us. Uh, maybe not in his prime but he'll still be quality, but it's just the injury. If he can stay healthy, he's going to be huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, But he he very much is – he's a dummy half who looks to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And that will be interesting because a lot of people have said that Reed Marnie has played the sort of football he has because that's what Brad Arthur has wanted from him as a dummy half because we know that when Reed Marnie was coming through the grades – that um, he played a different brand of football. He certainly well, he didn't have that sharp passing that he developed in uh, first grade under the coaching of Brad Arthur, where you were looking at that the, that pinpoint accurate long passing game that is the signature of giving width to uh, Mitch Moses and Dylan Brown in the in the delivery of the passes. Reed Marnie was he was one for getting out of dummy half. Um, he he basically at times was playing like a a halfback playing in the dummy half role when he was coming through the NYC. And if anything, he could be accused of being a bit greedy. And uh, there's you know the famous story that was told with uh, that he's told where when he came into first grade and had his first sit down and chat with Brad Arthur that uh, be a uh, said to him, you know, basically, you are a greedy so and so, aren't you? <laughs> and um, and re- went about reshaping his game. Now, will be would be a try to reshape Josh Hodgson's game. I don't think to any great deal. He would want he wants him for what he's got as a dummy half and yeah. what he offers. I think he would. Now, it's not to say that he wouldn't be coaching him because. That's the mark of Brad Arthur. He doesn't doesn't matter how old the player is or how experienced the player is. Ba is a, a great believer in uh, continuing players continuing to learn and shape the, shaping their game. But you also know that he will recruit particular types of players for what they can bring to the team with their existing skill set and the the existing way that they play. So I think when you're bringing in a player that's like 33 years of age and uh, and an international footballer who's played in a grand final as well, um, that you'd be looking to bring what he offers into the team. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, so he'll be, he'll be one of... Uh, uh, what at this stage is only a small number of new 
new faces in terms of the signings. It won't be a small number of new faces when it comes to pre-season because there'll be a lot of younger pathways players involved in the uh, the pre-season training up to Christmas. What might be interesting is if we have any train and trialers yes. from outside the club yeah. that you know might be a little bit of a pointer to maybe someone being offered a contract. I know nothing about anyone that is in that scenario. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, we've got a bit of a cheese board, a bit of a smorgasbord when it comes to NRL signings and transfers. So I'll just quickly run you through everything off the top and then you can tell me what you want to talk about 60s. Starting off with the retirement of Josh Jackson. There's some big implications there for the Canterbury Bulldogs, both in the leadership and in cap stakes. Then we move on. We've got uh, James Tamau heading back to the Cowboys for a one-year deal. The Knights released Jake Clifford, who is now expected to sign with Hull KR. Oliver Gildart's likewise released from the West Tigers. His tip to join the Dolphins. And then we've got a couple other sort of not quite confirmed but pointed at uh, retentions or signings. I think that the Manly Seagulls are going to stave off the Newcastle Knights to retain the services of their winger slash fullback slash goal kicker Ruben Garrick. And then there was something else. I have a quick run through here. Um, I'm not sure. The Jojo Fafita re-signed with the young winger, re-signed with the Gold Coast Titans. And then uh, we already mentioned that Manly re-signed uh, Ola Kowatu and Jason Saab last podcast. Uh, anyone else that I'm missing here? I don't think so. I think, well, oh, look, Kobe, I think Kobe, just, Kobe, Kobe just... Havington re-signs with the, uh, the Broncos too. So there you go. That's the last one there. Yeah, just with regard to uh, those ones that you ran through there, the the most interesting signing would have been had Ruben Garrick left the Sea Eagles to go to Newcastle because as far as performers, he was probably one of their most consistent performers during the season. And you mentioned his versatility of being able to fill in for fullback for uh, Tommy Turbo. And as we know with Tommy, the amount of time that he spends off the field if you've got someone else in your team that is an adept fullback, then you there's someone that you'd want to keep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, that's probably good news for Manly supporters in what has been one of the more disastrous back end of the seasons slash off season slash preseason <laughs> that any club would want to go through. So, uh, look, I don't think there's too much out of any of that. Yeah, um, they're all pretty inter- whatever when it comes to player transactions. Yeah, look, the, probably the the more interesting one is is that retirement of Josh Jackson because that's that maybe has some implications of easing some cap pressure maybe um, on the Bulldogs given their spending spree and uh, wanting to make sure that they've got the cash to register contracts. Um, Tamau back to the cows it almost sounds like they've thrown him a bone doesn't it like to uh, be able to retire on yeah well in American sports you sign the one day contract with a, if you're going to retire and you want to retire as, you know, back on the team that you sort of made your career with and then you know, your career went elsewhere as you got older and opportunities had to go to other places but yeah this does feel like the one day contract doesn't it and, are they that hard up for uh, depth on their bench? Because uh, that or they're feeling the pinch on the cap maybe because they're a team that's got a lot of off-contract stars, Reese Robson, Jeremiah Nanai at the top of it, but there's a, a few other players there too that aren't half bad um, and they've got yeah. to try and prioritise how to keep all those people 
together? Well, of course, last year we were talking about them coming into the 2022 season as being potential wooden spooners, mostly because we didn't realise how much some of those younger players would bloom under uh, Peyton in his second season because uh, that first season was a bit of a disaster for him and his team. But this year, it's like a they needed the turmoil of last year to help them mature as players. Mm-hmm. And, and whilst it could still be argued that there was a level of overachievement and a bit of a soft draw and um, a few other things fallen their way, for, you know, for example, the Tigers game, um, they still did particularly well considering where most people expected them to finish. Will some of those players have effectively a second-year syndrome? And I know that there's some that it wasn't necessarily their first year of first grade, but it, it feels like it's you'd be saying second-year syndrome in terms of them having their or, first or potentially a regression them. to the mean is the other sort of turn of phrase you could use as well. It wouldn't yeah. be the first time you've had a breakout team they got red hot and played a lot of great football across the course of a season. Uh, then they sort of fall back to earth a little bit. I hope that the Cowboys continue because they were a very fun team to watch. Todd Payton is a, uh, despite some of his sort of needling comments after the game, uh, the Dally M's, I thought he, he handled the loss of humility and I think he's a very easy coach to barrack for. But yeah, I think that it is quite possible that there is a regression to the mean coming for the Cowboys. Uh, but like I said, hopefully they can continue to perform at a high level. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, but that that I think that pretty much covers the general NRL news. Yeah, but. it's a lot of sort of minor transactions, nothing too big. Thankfully, no more drama. This might be the first clean week of no real drama. Uh, yeah, I had the, to say it. Yeah, yeah, I had to yeah, say, had it, to say but, it. But by the time the podcast gets out officially, hopefully we can get to the week's end, and then uh, maybe enjoy a, a full working day week without NRL drama. He says, "Knock you on his his beautiful wooden desk here." All right, that means we can talk Rugby League World Cup 60s. We've got round two of the men's competition to review. We've got round three to preview. And we've got the women's World Cup round one to preview. So let's get into it. I'll run, over, I'll run you over the results, sorry. Then you tell me what you want to talk about. Round two kicked off with Australia beating not only the Scots, but the clock, 84-0. Absolutely thumped uh, the poor Scotsman there. It was not a contest. Uh, Australia continues to boggle me with their jersey numbers. I hate it. We can talk about that later. Fiji bounced back from their loss to Australia with an absolute walloping of the Itais. Italy going down 60-4. to uh, Viliama Kikau dominating down that left edge alongside Parramatta's Mike Sivo. Then we move on to England v France. This is one of the ones that hurt you, 60s. You had a little more yeah, to go on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, England 42-18 to over France. Too good for the French, but not as good as you hoped that would be. Then we had New Zealand... Dylan Brown rested in this game as they sort of shook things up and and sort of had, honestly, a training run against Jamaica. They won 68-6. And again, again, costly for me. Yes, again, costly for you, which I'll let you explain later. Then we had probably one of the more fun games of the round. We did say this was going to be a bit of a round of blowouts, but this one, Lebanon v. Island, we had it sort of circled and highlighted because it was Premier Playmaker versus Premier Playmaker in two of the second-tier teams. Mitchell Moses versus Luke Keary. And Mitch Moses reigns supreme. Lebanon winning comfortably, 
32 to 14. Mitchell Moses had a hand in everything. He was sensational. Ellie Osgaham also scored a try down that right corner. Um, Mitch was just fantastic in this game. Then we had Samoa bounce back from their dreadful performance against England. Sorry, they flopped, flopped for our Greece, 72 to 4. So now we beat the clock in that game there. Then one of the other, sorry, the two other games here. Tonga, 32 to 6 over Wales, 60s. Will Penasini didn't play. He was rested as well. Uh, they weren't very clinical in this game. Uh, we'll talk about that too. And then one of the only other competitive games in this one, uh, Papua New Guinea, 32 over the Cook Islands, 16. PNG too strong, but the Cook Islands asked some questions. Yeah, yeah. So, mate, I, I just want to address these teams that cost me money. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I invested all of $6 on a uh, four-game multi, which was in the end returning me somewhere just shy of $5,000. And to me, it just seemed like there were some gimme matches. And uh, all of these markets were returning around 5 to $7 in, the, uh, in each of the markets. So there was uh, – I had – uh, Fiji to be 19 and a half or more in front at uh, at half time in uh, their game and that ended up being I think they were up 30 to nil at half time so that was well and truly covered uh, Lebanon and Ireland where for some reason Ireland were the favorites and, and I we, we, discussed, we discussed this as well this was one of those yeah. real head scratching lines that was set yeah I had um I had Lebanon to win 13-plus, which, again, to me, was an easy win there. Now, here's the ones that I was let down on. The um, New Zealand against uh, Jamaica, in all honesty, I thought there was 100 points in the, in the, in the making there. So I had them at the at base. I can't remember what the maximum winning margin was on the TAB and the pick-your-own-line. It might have been like 86.5 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was, I had the maximum uh, there because I thought there is – I'd watched that Jamaica game the week before and I thought if New Zealand plays as they should, then that was at least a point a minute or better. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't. And uh, Kieran Foran didn't help with his kicking. In any way. And then the other one, of, of course, too, was England had beaten Samoa by quite a margin. And I thought they would win by not quite as much, but still by, you know, a good 50 points against France. No. And that's where I want to start off with um, this week's, um, uh, with the, the reviews from last week, is England and France. I thought the French were actually... Um, they've performed quite well, I think, in this World Cup. They honestly have. And you can see the influence of some good coaching, of consistent football in the Super League over there. Um, Yeah, it's – they are – I think they are actually a team on the rise, and it will be interesting because it's – there have been times in the past, in the – quite distant past where the French could really put up um, a strong performance in test matches. That's true. Uh, however, obviously in, in more recent times, they were the poor cousin to the French rugby union um, f- 
from a professional perspective. You know, they were they've always been the poor cousin to the French rugby union. But when you had French rugby union, uh, when you had rugby becoming globally professional, it just left French rugby league in in an even more dire situation. So I think the steps that have been taken over there to to have uh, teams in the Super League and to develop the game of rugby league over there in France is starting to pay dividends. And I thought that they were, uh, they played well. I think they're well coached. I think that having the involvement of Trent Robinson there is um, is something that's uh, only going to lead to uh, a positive outcome. Yeah, so and, and importantly for the French team, I think they're essentially 100% homegrown. They're all yeah. you know, from the English Super League, but from the French team there in Le Catalans. Uh, I think maybe Samasoni Lange, he started in the NRL and he, he's either got it through residency or citizenship or he has a you know some sort of uh, ancestral tie to the French, whether it's grandparent or something like that. But yeah, otherwise they are all French, which is, you know, and, and from the Super League. So really cool stuff to see there. Done a fantastic job to be as competitive as they have. And they're sort of like now fighting on that sort of tier 1.5, aren't they? Where they're probably just like one or two good players away from being able to compete consistently with the likes of Tonga and Samoa and then maybe move on to even higher sort of challenges. Yeah, yeah. So um, that will be interesting to see whether they can qualify uh, in their um, with their final match, which uh, let me just refresh my memory who they are playing in their uh, final round match. Round sees the French taking on... Samoa, is it? Samoa, yes. And that's the uh, yes, that's that's actually the match that I've got written down as my key match to watch in the uh, when we we come to looking ahead. France at, at ten dollars, juicy odds there. Sorry, France at ten dollars. Samoa one hundred five, well, very juicy. Well, odds. hello, hello. <laughs> I, I think that I'm. I may not necessarily pick them to win but I, I'll, I'll give you the tip there's some value there to be I'll had be, on the margins I'll be having I'll be having a good look at some of the markets that's right exactly that are there yes sir so round two essentially played out as we all tipped I don't think there was any anywhere near an upset when it came to the head-to-head matches it was more about the quality of performances Australia too good Fiji but... any team still disappointing you well I was just going to run through because Australia they're, they're in Australia just sort of in cruise control at the moment I liked what I saw from Fiji. I thought that was a big bounce-back game against uh, Italy, who I think have been one of the more probably better put-together second-tier nations in this tournament. So good to see Fiji be dominant there. Uh, England's been good. New Zealand, they're in cruise control as well. Uh, the, I still think, I know that Samoa bounce-back have a big win over Greece, but they and Tonga have really, really sort of, maybe upset's too strong a word, but uh, they've definitely been disappointing. Uh, you know, Tonga really struggled against Wales. The 32-6 scoreline uh, probably flat, uh, even maybe even flatters them a bit, honestly, because they scored a couple of late tries there that helped pump the score out a bit. But yeah, they, these are two teams that, while they shouldn't necessarily be, you know, beating Australia and New Zealand, they should be hot in their heels, and it just doesn't feel like they are. Yeah, I, I think Tonga against Wales, yeah, it, that scoreline. It did flatter Tonga yeah, in and, the end. And if they're playing Australia, New Zealand, or England, or even France, like just any any team that's got a bit of resilience on the goal line and the ability to compete through the middle, 
I don't see how Tonga's going to be consistently scoring points. It just feels like the, the, the good teams will just strangle them out of the game. They'll nullify their forward pack. They can defend the back line. There's just no spark, no ability to compete in the kicking game. So, yeah, frustrating. Yeah, we um, so we we come down to what the halves. Yeah, I mean, again. so often does this conversation boil down to the halves and half knots, as the media like to do with their cheesy headlines. And this is what is really going to throttle Samoa and Tonga in the short, medium, and long term. Likewise, the Fiji too, because they've got plenty of talent in the back line and in the pack. You need playmakers, and you need consistent playmakers, and you need consistent playmakers that can make big plays. It is literally the, the bane of all non-contending NRL teams. It is the bane of all non-contending international teams. And that is why... And you know what? The, and I think the the other point that you, that we should probably throw in there as well is that those players in those positions, it certainly helps if they're a specialist in that position yes. because let's... The, the one... The team that I wanted to throw in there in, in speaking about the halves was PNG because... It, like their halves are not consistent NRL players. But. So Lachlan Lamb, he's he's been obviously he he's played NRL, but he's been real fringe NRL in throughout his career to this to this point. And uh, Labert, he's run around in the Q Cup, and it, he's he's. Has he even played one NRL game? I don't know that he's ever he played. Was, he was in the, Queen, the the Cowboys system for a few years. Yes, he was. He I was, but I don't think he got yeah, to. I, can't I remember think if he, he played. participated in the nines, I think, from memory. But he never shot. got never got a, a, an NRL game. Mm-hmm. So, and he's uh, he's like about what is he twenty seven or twenty eight years of age? So twenty seven, correct. He, yeah. So the likelihood is that he he may never play an NRL game. And yet, those two as a combination, and the way that they fulfil their role—they're full-time playmakers. They—they uh, they are well. They are that is their role in their teams on the weekends mm-hmm. as as playmakers, and they fulfil that role exactly how the PNG coaches want them to be in those matches. The thing about the PNG team is, uh, we look. We know that they're a they're a team of goers. You know, like they just rip in and um they have a they they just have that red hot crack with every carry or every tackle that they're trying to make some point sometimes to their uh to their own detriment with how they try to rip in especially in defense however they are most obviously coached to their strengths and coached to be a quite a well-organized team and a lot of that comes around the around the halves the dummy half who i think is playing in the super league is that right that uh, yes uh for was it was it lay or was it uh no Uh, a yeah who had that real awesome try assist after that real blockbusting run um but yeah yeah, i'm not sure if it's lay it was one of the small teams but he's uh been pretty pretty handy yeah so you you've got those those particular players, you you perhaps suggesting that they are playing above a level that maybe most rugby league clubs would expect from them. Mm-hmm. Um, if especially if if you can have um, 
uh, Lamb and Laybutt um, go any further than a, a World Cup quarterfinal, you'd be thinking to yourself, how, how is it that these players can't get a, a, an NRL or a Super League starting gig somewhere? Like, why, why is Lachlan Lamb consistently um, coming off the bench, you know, say at best? Um, why is it that Laybutt can't get And I, I suppose these are the sort of questions that would the NRL would then say, well, that points towards supporting expansion. You know, that there is yeah. enough player depth and uh, quality that, you know, even if they're not superstars, you can still build the 18th franchise beyond the Dolphins. So that's going to be interesting to see how the NRL tackle that particular one. Because, yeah, there, there are – that's what I love about the World Cup is how it shows up that there are people out there that maybe maybe it's not sure if, you, if they've got it to, you know, get into the grind that is the NRL because the NRL is an absolute meat grinder when it yeah. comes to attrition. But – at least in a you know a small sample of games in three games or four if you get into the finals, uh, but there are some players out there that aren't haven't been scouted by the top sixteen or now seventeen NRL teams or by the Super League. So very cool. Yeah, yeah well, in fact, this goes back to, and I know a lot of people disagree with my assessment here, but my assessment of Wally Lewis was that he was perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, representative player that most people would have seen in their lifetime mm-hmm. um, at club level when he finally was part of the um, uh, the Sydney Premiership. Well, because it wasn't the NRL back then when uh, the Broncos first came in, it was the New South Wales Rugby League uh, competition and it used to be called the Sydney Premiership. But uh, when when the Broncos first joined and he was in the team, and I think he was... He was 27 or 28. Now, a lot of people will argue that he was maybe not quite in his prime by the time the Broncos came in. I would say that most people would tell you that a halfback's well and truly in their prime at 27 and 28 years of age. But he was not the force in the week-to-week grind of premiership football. Yeah, um, Sure, he had some good games, but... Uh, the Broncos didn't win a title. And that, that's we, we speak about in the podcast all the time. That is the important lesson that Paramount Reels have had to learn over the last few years, and it's part of what makes the, the Penrith back-to-back title defense and just the last three years in general so insane is that the grind hasn't slowed them down at all. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's it, and it is, and it is completely different. And and this is where we're talking about um, this. World Cup and representative football, that it is different to that grind of week to week footy, where um, you know there's there's possibly players who don't have that mindset to compete at that high level week in week out for such an extended period of the year. And uh, however, there are those who, you know, they and this is where it comes down to this: maybe not a great difference in talent, but a massive difference in. Uh, mental uh, mm, focus and attitude, yeah. you know, all, all that sort of stuff that goes into separating what what is an NRL player from what is a, a very talented player who doesn't go on to have a either an NRL career at all or or a very limited one. So uh, it's it's often you know talent isn't isn't always the difference. It's uh, it's some of the intangibles. So um, yeah. Uh, yeah, now just moving on, mate. Yeah. The, um, the, the games coming up, I've already hinted that for me, <laughs> that Samoa and France 
is uh, a game that I'm particularly looking forward to for the reasons that we covered uh, about both teams. So at the end of two rounds, bearing in mind that there are three regular rounds before we get into the finals, in Group A, England sit at the top, undefeated, with their two wins with a points differential of 78. Samoa and France, who meet in that pivotal game three, well, they're one win apiece, so it's winner takes all. Uh, whoever wins this game will qualify for the finals. Greece sitting 0-2 cannot make things happen, unfortunately. In Group B, Australia, like England, sit atop undefeated for whopping points differential of 118. Fiji and Italy, well, they've met and Fiji prevailed, which means that uh, it's going to be a, a race. Well, I say a race. Uh, Fiji will need to beat Scotland or not get hammered by Scotland, while Italy need to limit the damage against Australia, which seems pretty unlikely, but we'll talk about that shortly. And then Group C, New Zealand atop undefeated. Ireland, Lebanon, one win. Jamaica, zero wins. Group D, Tonga on top, undefeated. Papua New Guinea and Cook Islands, one win apiece. Wales with no wins, which means look at the matchup 60s. It's uh, that's the late women's game, sorry. It starts off with England, sorry, England, New Zealand versus Ireland. Then you've got England versus Greece, Fiji versus Scotland, Australia versus Italy, Lebanon v Jamaica, the Matema Atonga versus Cook Islands, Samoa versus France, and Papua New Guinea versus Wales. So once again, a lot of sort of expected blowouts. I think you got yes. Ireland at thirty-four dollars, Greece at fifty-one dollars, Scotland at thirty-four dollars, Italy at a hundred and one. That's West Tigers odds right there, baby. Uh, you got <laughs> Jamaica at forty-one dollars, the Cook Islands at ten, France at ten, and Wales at ten. So there are some juicier odds in that sort of lower bracket there. Uh, if you're playing the margins, playing the different lines there, and I'll, I'll let you talk about which games you got your eye on. Obviously, we talked about the. Big one there between France and where are we? And Samoa. And Samoa, but uh, also you know just some of the other games that have some implications for finals football. Perhaps a chance for players to sign off from the tournament in style. Yeah, look, I, I'm looking at that, not, and I think every favourite gets home in that. It, it is hard to take a stance otherwise. They're, yeah. they're just, I mean, obviously all the tier one countries, Australia, England, New Zealand, uh, you know, they're straight away just unbackable favourites. I mean, I'm surprised New Zealand's even giving you one cent on the dollar. Like that that actually seems like a sound investment, honestly. Uh, but England, you're not making any money. It's $1 flat. Australia's a dollar flat. Fiji's one cent on the dollar. Lebanon's one cent on the dollar. So there you go. There, there, there is just some crazy short odds here. Uh, yeah, and it's it sort of... It's, I mean, obviously, it just makes any sort of underdog stories that much more fascinating if anyone gets up. But at the same time, it, it's a bit unfortunate the way the pools are structured that, you know, you've got to have all your big teams making sure they get through. Uh, it's the same with any World Cup, not just in rugby league. That's why you don't have New Zealand, Australia, England uh, in any of the same pools. Uh, but it also leads to some, you know, lesser competitive games. Because if you had a pool that featured the likes of, uh, for, uh, let's go, France, Italy, uh, Lebanon and maybe, gosh, Cook Islands. Like you'd have, you know, France be the favourites, but then you'd have some real fascinating games there to try and figure out who's going to be the the top two seeds. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, it's interesting. I reckon the way that Tonga played last week, that um, the Cook Islands might have got close. Um, considering that the Welsh team were able to get close, not that not that the Cook Islands have been anything to write home about. They they also um, lack having a 
um, an experienced oh, um, Isan professional halves. Yeah, Isan yeah. Moss is running around at halfback. And, yeah, uh, and Tacker was playing five yeah, eight. Tacker at five eight, exactly. You know, they they they're players that are best known in other positions, and when you are taking the field in the halves in an international match, it's you're going to be struggling. But the the fact that they were able to get, um, you know, into a competitive situation last week, it, it made me think that uh, maybe, like, if Tonga were to play as badly as they did against Wales, that it could have been a close affair against the Cook mm-hmm. Islands. But, yeah, I'm suspecting that uh, given that the, the Cook Islands have that halves issue much the same as uh, as Tonga does. Uh, Tonga has the um, probably the stronger performing outside backs um, than, yes, than what Cook Islands do. So a luxury I, I, sort of a surplus of outside backs, honestly. Yeah, I, look, I think it's almost a case of uh, within the spine. It's it, it's as I said, you you're looking at similar problems. So, I oh, you know. I think that Tonga probably runs away w- with that if they play as they capable. Hopefully should. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I keep coming back to the Samoa versus France game because once again, Samoa haven't set the world on fire at the at the World Cup level and have probably been a disappointment in what they've been able to deliver in spite of winning last in their last match. Um, France... Yeah, they they could well they could well get up in that game. That's that's probably the only game that I'm tipping could be a close match. And it's win and you're in. So winner takes all in this game. Whoever takes the two points gets second place in the Group A pool and qualifies for the elimination bracket. Yeah, and uh, and of course this round all kicks off at 6.30 a.m. in the morning tomorrow with New Zealand and Ireland. Then you've got um, uh, basically uh, triple headers after that. The, you, our, um, our early Sunday morning, we've got three matches yeah. going through, culminating in Australia and Italy as the last of those three. Then kicking off just before midnight or 11 p.m. on Sunday, the Lebanon and Jamaica Tonga and Cook Islands, followed by Samoa and France, which is the last game in the early hours of Monday morning, and then uh, the last game of the pool section is um, is PNG and Wales, six uh, thirty a.m. Tuesday, and then that rolls neatly into the women's the start of the women's World Cup, mate. Yes, so as the men conclude their regular sort of pool games, the women start theirs. Kicking off on Wednesday, 1.30 a.m., so a nice and early start. You're going to have the host country, England, taking on Brazil, followed up by PNG taking on Canada, New Zealand v. France, Australia versus the Cook Islands, and that rounds out the four-game yeah, four game battery of uh, week one games there. So, yeah, Australia represented twice over in the Australian team 60s. I'm not sure about the other countries. We know that uh, Gail Broughton has... Uh, opted against representing New Zealand, so I don't think we have any representation for the uh, the NZ team. But 
I'm not sure about uh, the likes of PNG, Cook Islands, even England. We have to wait and see what the team must look like. Mate, it's the, the it's really interesting seeing that there is a Brazil team, yeah, and, in it where there is no Fijian team, there is no Samoan team, yep. there is no Tongan team. Yep, the Cook Islands got there though, so well done to to CI there. They've done a fantastic job. Canada, I'm not surprised about because they've actually got a sneaky little uh, representation when it comes to rugby week. I toured there uh, as a schoolboy playing rugby union uh, as part of a, a country development squad, and yeah, that. But between Union and League, they've got a nice little presence in Canada, and uh, we saw the Wolfpack right have a nice little run in the headlines for a few years. Um, so yeah, uh, good good on Brazil, good on Canada, good on the Cook Islands, and then you got to ask some questions like you said about the other Pacific countries. You know, where's their representation here? Mate, we're going to have to have a podcast where you're talking about your touring days. Yeah, I had a couple of footy tours, yeah. So I was pretty lucky as a kid. I was, you know, reasonably talented at football and, and had, a, you know, obviously a family situation that allowed me to have some uh, luxury football tours. And it was very, very great stuff. So, and uh, obviously there's some tour stories you have to keep on tour. Uh, <laughs> but uh, very, very fun stuff. And it's part of the appeal of sports. And you, you can see why, you know, young men get... And, and the young ladies now too, because that's going to be a big part of uh, the representative programs for rugby league moving forwards is uh, both the men and women in the young brackets getting to do the tours and all those sort of things. And it's, it is so much fun. New Zealand and Canada. Yeah. So uh, to the two extremes when it comes to rugby union, one is literally, you know, the sort of cauldron of rugby union and one is uh, uh, much, much smaller, but i got to say the Canada tour was great. Uh, fun country to go across. We went from uh, west to – not quite – we didn't get into French Canada or uh, Quebecois, but we got we went from uh, the west coast right through to the central uh, regions, and it was very, very fun. Mate, I've got to ask you for a question without notice. Um, any names of note in your uh, touring party? Uh, as for guys that went on to play professional football, there was – uh, a couple of guys that I played in that in that particular team, there was one player that uh, played breakaway or flanker, and um, he got a Tars contract, but never went on to play. I don't think he represented the Tars, uh, but I've played with a few players that either played Super League or NRL. Uh, Parramatta's Nathan Smith was someone that I literally grew up with as a rival school uh, and sort of fellow uh, Mid North Coast representative football player. Played a ton of football with him. Uh, he 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 didn't really crack it, but the one that I looked at as a potential superstar was a kid called AJ Gilbert. Say, kid, he was older than me. He was a phenom. Uh, he ended up getting a contract for the Reds. Played some Super Rugby, uh, but he was a, a breakaway as well uh, by trade, and they ended up making him play hooker. Uh, so it was a bit of a <laughs> rough transition for him there. He was a wonderful bloke and phenomenally talented. So, and there's a couple other guys that have played, you know, a bit here and there. But yeah, I sort of um. I, I grew up with Greg Inglis playing at Maxwell at the time, but I didn't play rugby week in the club level. So uh, we played, we ended up getting a, a creating the program in our school and we uh, played CIS, which is the weakest of the brackets there. But uh, yeah, it was a uh, very, very fun playing rugby week in the schoolboy thing after playing a lot of union. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a few stories that I can talk about later, but I won't bore you too much right now. <laughs> uh, mate, I, I, I... I, I had had to ask about that, but it was um, it was obviously a, a, a lot of fun to be able to do that, and um, yeah, to be able to uh, look at those touring years and the and the fun that you had 
uh, with that, it's um, uh, another quick question because you mentioned it. Like, I'm a dinosaur, so my rugby union days it was we called flankers breakaways. When did the term flanker come in? It was definitely strongly entrenched when I was playing, which would have been uh, I played most of my like serious football from sort of 2000 to 2005, uh, going through uh, senior high school. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I use the term interchangeably because we just grew up. At, I, I was at a private school, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the rugby, sorry, rugby unionisms uh, sort of just stuck there. But I can't tell you when breakaway became flanker, and you know we also used open side, blind side um, as well. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. That, that is a good question. Yeah, because as I said, it's that it was always breakaway when I was. But you know, we're we're talking about the. Um, uh, what 1969 or 1970 onwards there from when I was playing rugby union. So that was, <laughs> that's many generations ago. <laughs> so anyway, but I digress. So uh, mate, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, how that, uh, the women's uh, competition pans out well, with those unknown. That's right. Looking, look at these matchups. I expect England to run rampant over Brazil. PNG versus Canada could be a little bit of a wild card game because I'm not really sure what the status of the PNG football is in the women's code. Uh, New Zealand versus France. New Zealand should win comfortably here, but once again, the French have got a history of rugby league, so maybe they can put up a bit of resilience. And Australia should rump it in over the Cook Islands, but hopefully the Cook Islands can show a little bit and score a trial free. Yes, yeah. So um, it's uh, – and, and – how many rounds of the uh, of the of the women's got in there? So they've got three rounds, like the men. Let me just have a quick look at the potential World Cup standings in the women's. So that they play two pools. Uh, yeah. So we got Brazil, Canada, England, and PNG in one. Australia, Cook Islands, France, New Zealand in the second. Then if I just look at the brackets after World Cup matches. So we go through, and it is, yeah. So they play directly into a semi-final. Looks like so the top so three three rounds, three, yeah, rounds three rounds. Top two teams from both pools go through into the semi. Then the the two winners play for the actual World Cup title itself. Yep. Yep. Okay. Good one. Okay, mate. Well, I think that just about wraps up. Yeah, another uh, fun Cal. podcast. A lot of, uh, thankfully, not no real bad news for the NRL or the Eels, particularly even with the West Tigers courting Mitchell Moses and Dillbags there. It's to be expected. And then, yeah, no dramas, no scandals. Like I said, knock on wood, nothing's come out during recording. So if it does come out, you can blame me because I did you know, make sure to put it on the recording nice and loud. But, yeah, as always, thanks for stopping by giving us a listen. Hope you enjoyed uh, a more relaxed podcast, I suppose, uh, with uh, no spirit here, it's just me and you shooting the shit and just, you know, sort of goofing around about World Cup, which is fun. Well, we we, we probably lack the professionalism. Oh, oh 100% we lack the professionalism. <laughs> this is a this is the uh, casual Friday podcast at work, you know. The the boss has said, yeah, you can come in your Hawaiian or your flannel and just chill out and then maybe take the afternoon off. That's what this podcast is. <laughs> it, it, it feels... Yeah, it, it, it almost feels like No Pants Friday in a way, you know, like. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, I wanted to send a shout out to everyone that jumped on the post this week about the mm. um, Eels prospective team list into That's next right. year. It was uh, last I checked, it was heading towards about 5,000 reads. It was um, plenty of comments, too. Phenomenal people... response to it. So 
Um, glad people enjoyed uh, jumping in there and, and sharing their opinions of where Parramatta's roster's at. So um, you know, stick with TCT because we'll keep putting the uh, content out there and we are just a, a short period of time away from the beginning of uh, Eels pre-season training reports. Yes, sir. So look forward to everything that 60s brings you from the ground out at Kellyville. And like you said, we've got plenty of content coming in between there as well. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Go you Eels.